Ladies and gentlemen, boys and ghouls, to all of our non-binary friends, everyone on the spectrum, and in between, welcome to another episode of The Shutter Show. My name is Ken Stacknick, and this is my co-host, David Marlowe. And we are here today to talk about the Australian film from 1971, Wake in Fright. David, how are you doing today? Oh, I am nice and toasty. I, I, I just out of respect for this film, I, I made it... At least a point to have two beers before we started. This movie is up there with Whitnail and I as one of the most drunken movies maybe ever. Um, I do believe that there is online a Wake in Fright compilation of all of the drinking. In oh, this there movie. absolutely is, and yeah. I watched it. it yeah, was and it, it's like four and a half minutes, right? Yes. And, it's, and mind you, taking a drink does not take a long time. And there is four and... Uh, four and a half, four minutes, something like that, of just raw drinking in this movie. Yeah. It is wild. Yeah, now, now, Ken, could you please, yeah, confirm this for me, because I did hear someone say on a review that one of the things, or at least one of the actors, um, had been handed a beer, and he drank it, and he's like, what the hell is this? And to which they say, oh, it's a, it's a non-alcoholic beer. It's like, here's the thing. I will handle the drinks, you handle the directing. Yeah, no, that's Chips Rafferty. Um, he plays the sheriff yes. in this movie. This is his final movie. Um, he died not that long after this um, because of how he acts in this movie. Yes. I he, imagine his liver is the size of a football. He, not, yeah, he got very upset that the director tried to switch out non-alcoholic beer for him. And then he proceeded to drink real beer the whole time. So every shot that you see is a selected shot. So that means like he's actually probably drinking at least three, if not five or more times as much beer. And he never forgot a line. He never screwed up a scene. He did everything he was expe- uh, expected Dude to do. Dude was a goddamn professional. Uh, Chips Rafferty is a very well-respected, very well-known, uh, long-time actor in Australia. And yeah, he was known as a consummate professional and also one of the biggest alcoholics of all time. Which you could, now thinking about that, I kind of looked back and I, I rewatched. There, there were scenes in this movie. I like. Let me just say, I fucking loved this movie to the point where like I went back and watched certain scenes. Um, but after I learned that that was actual beer that he was drinking, I, the whole time I was watching the reaction of um, what's the actor's name? Gary. Um, Gary Bond. Gary Bond, the 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 lead in this. Yes. Who just just that? watching him watch. His co-actor down beer after beer and just being like, "How the fuck is he doing this?" Well, and it's also fascinating because Gary Bond looks so much like Peter O'Toole, who is he also does. is an absolutely famous, absolutely infamous dude who could hold his liquor. And there is there is a real like there is a real reason that they cast him in this. In that, like Peter O'Toole has a certain charm to him that you understand why both this guy has the outlook that he does and also why everybody in the outfa- uh, in the outback is so upset with him because like dude you got dealt the hand you look like Peter O'Toole you're blonde you're glistening you look great you've you've got a job and and and, and you're not going to like it's the scene where he gets his food and immediately he's like, I'm not eating these eggs. I'm oh, not from eating these Donald- toast. Oh, and, yeah. oh yes. and chucks them aside and Donald Pleasant Donald- is like... Are you going to eat those? Yeah, exactly. And that, like, well, fuck you, I'm taking yeah, and Yeah, well, that, but that's also the moment that Donald Pleasant realizes, like, this is a guy I can get something from. Because Donald Pleasant is the smart guy in town. He's the doctor. He's, he's not gambling. He's the book. Well, his first line is... The little devils are proud of their uh, are proud of their hell. Yes, which by which by the way there there's oh god I, I have a quote in here which I I love the quotes that come out of his goddamn mouth. One of them is discontent is the luxury of the well to do. If you live here, you might as well like it. Um, fuck, I love Donald Pleasance in this film. And if you do not know who Donald Pleasance is, he's Doctor Loomis in the Halloween. Yeah, movies. go watch Halloween. 
the movie you watch once a year. Yeah, uh, watch him in uh, Twenty Thousand Leagues from Under the Sea. See him in um, Fantastic. Uh, was it uh, was it Fantastic Voyage? Yeah, the one where yeah. everybody gets all tiny. Yes, yes. yes. Um, he, he's he's in a lot of great stuff. He's one of those actors that you'll immediately recognize. But let me tell you, he is an absolute and to quote predator sexual tyrannosaurus in this movie. Oh, he has such strong bear energy. I cannot like this. This is the movie that lets you know that Donald Pleasance is up there with one of those seventies actors like. Uh, Donald, um, like uh, Elliot Gould or Donald Sutherland, who you're like, wait a second, you're telling me those guys were sexual icons back in their day? And if you talk to your parents, the answer is absolutely yes. Like, if you want to talk about who the Adam Driver of their day was, it's probably Elliot Gould. Which, man, that dude has some sex eyes in this. Oh, yeah. No, like, he's got... Some energy. He also has what has to be now one of my favorite one-minute monologues that I've that I've ever seen, and it's his monologue where he thinks that his drinking partner is Socrates. Yeah, and <laughs> and the lead passes out and passes out under the table, and the whole time he's looking, he's like, "Where's Socrates? Where did he go?" And just starts wrecking the joint that this kind man has let them drink at. That scene. Is truly insane. This whole movie is kind of an exercise in insanity, and it is a great. It is a movie like the two movies that I would kind of compare this to the most that I can think of offhand are Martin Scorsese's After Hours, where Griffin Dunn kind of has a similar uh, wild and crazy couple of days uh, while he is in uh, in in After Hours. It's in uh, downtown Manhattan. And then the other movie actually is Spring Breakers. This movie totally comes off to me as like a male Spring really? Breakers. Because Spring Breakers to me is a movie about the idea of, you know, spring break forever. And like, and, and leaning into all of... It's got some f- real Storm the Capitol vibes to it. <laughs> kind of, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Where like it sounds really fun on paper... But, like, actually, if you take into mind what's actually going to be the consequences of, of what's going to happen, like, spring break forever also means probably STDs forever. And, yeah, going out... Or ODing, and, like, it's forever because you have... You're not alive anymore. Well, and just, yeah, or just, yeah, and hanging out with a bunch of the yabos in, uh, in this town and uh, going out and shooting... Uh, Kangaroos. Also, uh, let's be yes, very there, clear. There is a there absolutely is a massive, yeah. massive disclaimer that we have to talk yes, about. Yes, hundred percent. Though, okay, before we get to the disclaimer, should we like? Because I have the summary written down. I have like, do we want to do a non-spoiler thing? Well, all right. With so this? I don't think there's a sp- it's no a spoiler. It, it's pretty straightforward. Uh, but like, what I want to say is, if you are sensitive to movies that contain. Animal death. Actual, real animal death. very specifically, actual animal death. Yes. Despite the fact that what is said in the movies, what is, I have found in my research, what I have found backed up by the people who have given interviews who were part of this movie, the animals that were killed as part of the making of this movie were done by licensed killers. They were shot by this production, but they were done as part of a cull of... Kangaroos, which at the time were considered pests, much in the same way that deer are considered pests yes. in the Midwest. Even now, that even does not now, I use it. Yeah, but it was not. Um, there's a series of Mondo movies from the uh, from the 60s and 70s in Italy that include like feeding wild pigs to wild snakes and actual full-on animal cruelty, like. You can see scenes where, like, an animal is being shoved towards another animal with a stick, and then that wild animal eats that other one. This is not that. That said, there is real animal death. It is not fun. It is not cute. It is not cool. No. And if that is not something, and that it you goes can handle, on for a little while. It, yes, um, it's it's from about the hour. Uh, I want to say fifteen minute mark, like to the hour, hour and seven twenty minutes. minute mark. Yeah, hour and Start, seven. Starts okay. at hour and seven. I actually okay. made sure to note that hour and seven to I think around an hour fifteen is where all of that kind of is. And yeah, if you skip it's... over that, then you don't have to worry about that. That said, this movie is still intense. It has oh, stuff that's... going on, but that yeah. specifically is a if you if you yeah. do not like that, then then yeah, like definitely skip it. I would still 
highly recommend this film because it is, in fact, an amazing film. And, and, and kind of going into a little bit more detail about that scene, um, you know, I, I have a couple of friends who live in Australia and they have described kangaroos as the deer of the outback. Well, um, but the actual, the, the, the hunters that they hired, and I've read a couple of different stories about this, was that during the actual calling they had decided to be drinking during and got a little too drunk. That is true. Um, the The original cameraman also um, got a little queasy and could not continue shooting, so the director had to take over shooting. And on top of all of that, a, a actually really fascinating part of the story is that then like the National Wildlife Fund once they saw all of the footage the director shot, was like, put it all in. Like... Really? Because... This one I did not... Oh, I didn't... Because they wanted to show the public how horrific this was. Like, because they did not agree with what was happening. The deer... The, the kangaroos were okay. considered pests. And they wanted to show everybody, like, what... Just giving out these permits to whoever, want, to whoever wants to go and call them is not actually cool. No. So these permits should go to registered hunters. Who are going to do it properly. So so we're not saying this is okay in any way, shape, or form. We're saying this is complicated. It is, and it's something that we are not experts in, but we are saying that this is a trigger warning. This is a content warning. If that is something that you are not able to handle, we 100% understand if you skip this episode and, and just check us out on the next one. Yeah. That said, I... This there's a reason that this is one of the few movies. I think it's I think it's one of three movies Two. that have that have well that have played Cam the Cam yeah, film I, I think I, least, twice. I, I watched because there's there's a couple of interviews with the director. Oh, um, currently after the re-release, and I do believe that that one of the heads of the the Cannes film group is Martin Scorsese. Yes, and he was the one that saw to it that it was re-released in Cannes, and I do think he made mention Con, that it, what but yeah. Or so, yeah. That's um, fine. You're white. It's cool. <laughs> um, I'm also from Indiana. Yes, that's how we. That's how we pronounce true. everything over there. Um, Des Plaines. Yeah, <laughs> you son of a fuck. Um, but yeah, no. He made mention that like his was one of um, two films that made it that that was re-released, and the oh my god, and the story behind how this this movie became popular is insane because this movie did not do well on the day. Oh no, and, and on top of it, it was it's one of those interesting movies that was initially really looked down on by the Australian public and then later on became like actually this is kind of our 100% our or like not our jam, but like as a matter of fact like it it became it became a movie that well, it, it became one of the touchstones of the uh, Australian New Wave, which is one of those movies like with uh, Picnic and Hanging Rock, um, with uh, uh, Breaker Morant, um, with Rabbit Proof, uh, Rabbit Proof Fence, even Witness to a certain uh, extent. Um, I mean, yeah, most of the work of Peter Weir. The, I mean, it became the equivalent of what the French New Wave was in the 60s. And one of the things that I think that's really interesting, and for anybody out there who's really interested in Australian cinema, so one of the two things, the when it comes to the history of cinema, there are two countries who have a history of drive-ins, and it's Australia and it's the United States. And it's okay. because these are the only two countries that are pretty much big enough that you kind of have to have a car. And as a result, mm. they're the only two nations that really developed drive-ins. So as a result, in the 1970s... The only place that have the infrastructure for Well, like it was a... It was a pl- drive-ins were a place where you could show cheaper, low-rent movies. Um, there's a long history of uh, Australian movies being shown in American drive-ins, and you don't realize you were watching an Australian movie till everyone opened their mouth. Uh, and then there's also a long history of... Uh, actually, Australia, interestingly enough, in the 70s was one of the first markets where early adult films, ones that had some kind of a story but with a decent amount of sex in it, was kind of like a fun adult date for a little bit. 
yeah. there. And as a result, there were a lot of, not hardcore, but movies in Australia that either had a lot of uh, nudity or violence or explosions or lesbians or, uh, f- frankly, any kind of, uh, I mean... Just a uh, lot of exploitative... Like, uh, Nicole Kidman got her her, her break uh, in BMX Bandits, which is essentially just, like, a bunch of kids on BMX bikes because BMX bikes were really popular. And then it was like a... They found a bag of gold that some robbers stole, but they dropped it when they were fleeing from the cops, and now the kids on bikes have it, so now we have a bunch of chases, and her hair is so big and so frizzy, it's amazing. The... I do remember... I'm, I'm very happy that... At least one of the things that's kind of coming back a little bit during the pandemic is drive-ins. Because I do remember, as a kid, the first time I ever saw Lion King was in the drive-ins with my dad. It like, was such a good time. Drive-ins can be a lot of fun, but the important thing with drive-ins in the history of American and Australian cinema was they were a place that you could show lower-rent movies. They were yeah. places that Roger Corman was able to get programming. It was a places that you could show movies that weren't made by the studios and you could get them out there for people to see them. And the drive-ins, there was a certain amount of... There's a different viewing experience with the drive-ins where it's a little bit more fun. You can still go with a couple of your friends, and you can actually kind of be loud and talk with your friends in the car. And if that's fine with everybody in the car, then that's fine with there. But you kind of can't do that in like a standard movie theater. If you yeah. and a bunch of your friends are all talking through the movie, you're the assholes. But at a drive-in... If you and me and somebody else who've seen the movie before, or just want to get high and goof off about it, you can do that in a drive-in, and it's totally fine. You just got to keep your headlights off. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. But, uh, like, and the thing is, too, like upon its re-release, you, know, you have folks like Roger Ebert who reviewed the re-release and said it's not dated, it is powerful, genuinely shocking, and rather amazing. It comes billed as a horror film and contains a great deal of horror... But all of the horror is human and brutally realistic. I completely agree, and I think this is a great movie to put on the list with something like Rosemary's Baby for when people want to make the argument, well, that's not a horror movie because it didn't have... And whatever, their specific checklist of things that need to be involved in a horror movie for them to be a quote-unquote horror movie. Yeah. And there is no way, I think, that you can argue that what happens in Wake and Fright is not horrific in the same way that, like, you might agree that nothing really happens in Rosemary's Baby except she gets raped by Satan. (laughs) And it seems like getting raped by Satan would be pretty horrific. Also, the the director makes note of the fact that when this first premiered, he remembers um, sitting in the theater, and it, I think it was part it was part of, of a festival circuit, and he was sitting in the theater, and he remembers that it was it was being shown in in Europe, and he made note of the voice behind him commenting on it because it was like the one of the few American voices he could hear, and all he hear, heard was oh wow oh he's going is he gonna is he actually going there? <laughs> oh my god, this is incredible. And he wanted to know, like, who was the person sitting behind me? He's like, oh, it's this, this uh, director. He's only done one film. I, and he's like, well, go find out his name. I want to know who he is. Like, do you really want me to, like, like he's, he's, he's I, I don't think he even did that well. And he's just like, fine, I'll go find out his name. He's like, his name is Martin Scorsese. And he's like, goes, oh, well, yeah, I guess I haven't heard of him. But like apparently, um, yeah, the, direct, the director in, never forgot yeah, that name. Yeah, and in then seventy one, he's going to be doing like Boxcar Bertha. Yeah, like yeah, he's going to be he's going. Uh, Alice doesn't learn no, He I mean, Alice doesn't live here before another like five or six years. Yeah. Like and that. so when the re release happened, you know, it was Martin Scorsese and Martin Scorsese found out about it. Like he was the one who was pushing for it to be re released. And so I remember he like he he mentioned seeing him at an Oscar party, and and getting to have a full conversation with him. And Martin Scorsese, when he first saw it, was like 25 at the time. Yeah, totally. And it's just like, it's such a... But he loved it so much that... And he doesn't like necessarily putting comments on what he thought about a film on a poster, but he liked it so much that he pretty much gave his comments to marketing and they, they were allowed to put his quote on a poster. Well, he's, he's... I mean, he's one of the biggest proponents for... Uh, film restoration definitely out there. He has been at the forefront of making sure that we are 
saving these films. And this is exactly the kind of movie that somebody like Martin Scorsese kind of needs to get behind because on paper, it seems like a, oh, it's an Australian horror movie about people who get drunk in the outback and they go do too much hunting and it seems really bad. And you're like, yeah. yeah. If it's I, actually amazing. Yeah, if I could describe this movie, like, it, Wake and Fright is essentially a Hunter S. Thompson film without the journalism and hard drugs. Um, like it's well, like an origin hard drugs. You just have beer. Yeah, but it, I would also say maybe it's the Australian version of the Lighthouse. Okay, yeah, I can see. that. I think that's a great comparison, and both of them end in uh, a weird homosexual like sex moment. Uh, uh, well, was, a weird homosexual sex fight. It comes out. Of, yeah, weird home. Yeah, yeah. There we go. Sex a weird fight. homosexual sex fight. Yeah, this one actually they're, ends they're, in the actual yeah, act of. They're, they're a little mad at each other. They're a little hot for each other. They're a little bit shovey. They're a little bit touchy. Yeah, it's a good old fashioned sex fight. One one, one reviewer made a comment. It's like like oh, I didn't realize that this was literally about the guy discovering that he was a homosexual. I'm like I don't think that that's what the movie is trying to get across. I, I, yeah, I think it's much more of a when you're in the middle of nowhere and there's nothing to feel, you feel anything that you can. Yeah. Kind of, a, a much more of a vibe. Now, um, we have talked a lot about the director and we should say his name, uh, Ted Kocheff. Yes, Ted, Kocheff. Ted, yes, we have not um, mentioned his name, Ted yes. Kocheff. Now, uh, he is a fascinating director in his own right in the fact that he also directed First Blood, uh, the Rambo movie, which is fantastic. <sighs> But he also directed Weekend at Bernie's. And we, we, we. So he's uh, a man of both highs and lows. And the man who played Bernie uh, was in one of our other films. Oh, yes. Um, Um, Oh, God, which film was it that he was in? uh, Write us in the comments and remind us of which movie that was. It was. uh, (laughs) Was it uh, Dead. um, Dead by Daylight? No, not Dead. We didn't do. uh, Dead and Buried? I think it's Dead and Buried. Maybe. Maybe. Mm. Anyway, let's move on because yes, yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll move right. on. But so, I'll, um, I'll, another I'll, person I'll... I want to mention who actually does not get a whole lot of um, credit and, and unfortunately is also um, one of those guys who really didn't um, wasn't able to, like uh, make a bounce off the diving board with this, and that is Brian West, the cinematographer. Because as a cinematographer myself, I love the cinematography in this movie. I love the. The slightly warm kind of yellowish tone. I love how blown out the lights are. I love how hot and sweaty everything feels. I love the spinning camera. I love I love how so many characters in this movie are dazzled and distracted and sent into a tizzy by bright lights. Whether it's uh, the main character Gary, uh, that Gary Bond plays who's looking up into the lights while they're playing the gambling game, whether it's looking into the sun, whether it's to when they're drinking, whether it's the lights that dazzle the kangaroos. There's a whole lot of people being uh, blinded by the light and it making them make crazy decisions. Yeah. And, and even then, um, and there's a great... At the beginning of oh yes, so it's Tammy and the T Rex. Oh, Tammy and the T Rex. Where where, where where is where he's? Oh yes, no, he's the yeah. He's, of course, he's the the evil scientist. Yeah, um, such a weird in between. Um, but no, no, like like kind of what we were saying, going back to the everything being in the light. I will say this has one of the best shot gambling scenes I've ever seen. Oh, in my so, entire fucking life, oh, it's up there with like Casino Royale. Or rounders, where just like they get the back and forth, and it's also a game that, like, yeah, as two Americans, yeah, I'm uh, not two th- up, yeah, uh, two up, which yeah. uh, um, which was popularized uh, kind of uh, the world round uh, during World War Two. Yeah, even even the uh, the main character, which Johnny is, I believe, is Johnny is his name. Yes, um, Johnny makes mention of is like, oh, seems like a very simple yeah, John Grant. Yeah, seems like a very simple, stupid premise. But then it's he gets sucked in, and because like, and every time they throw the coins up, um, it's pretty much you throw the coins up and you guess heads or tails. Yeah, and that it's is, either got to be it's two coins, and they either have to either be both be heads or they have to both be tails. And if it's a, a mispair, then you just flip again. So it's always so the, so there's only a winner if it's both heads and both tails. Yeah, and the flipper always flips for heads. But because he flips it up in the air. He flips it into the light. Mm-hmm. So as you're going up, it's almost like it's creating this sense of recklessness. Well, and which then is then shown when, like later on, he's wandering around the desert. He looks up at the sun. He sees that, and the same thing with how they dazzle the kangaroos. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things. So I will also say this: if you really want to get, if you really want a hardcore, long-term exploration of this film. You need to check out a podcast called Martini Giant, episode 11, with their guest Joe Farrell. Because while 
David and I will do a very good job giving you a reason to watch this movie. Hopefully, we'll give, give you some insight on why it's interesting. They did a three-and-a-half-hour-long podcast with Joe Farrell, who happens to be the grandson of the original author of this book. So they have insight and information and things that neither David and I can provide, and as opposed to just regurgitating what they said i highly recommend you check out their podcast it's fantastic they are uh, friends of the pod for sure mm-hmm. martini giant at martini giant on twitter and martini giant on all of the places that pods are cast yes i've listened to more than a couple episodes and they are fantastic absolutely all right so let's see here um, oh also other thing i want to mention really quickly I think the new discourse that we should have next Christmas is Wake and Fright is a Christmas movie. Yes! Because it's all... Because it is a on, Christmas He's movie. on his Christmas holiday! Absolutely! Which is, oh. uh, yeah, just fantastic. It, is, it has been hilarious to me how many of our movies have, with the exception of our Christmas special double feature, how many have accidentally been a holiday film. Mm-hmm. Fifth Chord was a New Year's Eve film. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is, yeah, a yeah. Christmas movie that I totally forgot was a Christmas movie that we did like a couple weeks after um, Christmas. We sure probably done this around Christmas. Yeah, here, Ken, let me, let me, if anything, let me give at least a summary of the plot of this film. Because I feel yes. like we've talked a lot about it, but I feel like we haven't really touched on what it is. Yes, no, so there's like a non-spoilery kind of like vibe of what, of what we're going to go into. Yes. David, go for it. So I've written it as an English school teacher working in the middle of Taboonda, Australia, out of the Australian outback, is disenchanted with education after being trapped in a financial bond with the government. He goes on a depression-fueled Christmas holiday and becomes stuck in the town of Yaba, where he slowly... And it's, it's something else that apparently didn't save the full pronunciation of what the actual town is. Yaba. Um, but it's actually, it's longer than that. Um, I will look that up while you... But he goes on a depression-filled Christmas holiday and becomes stuck in the town of Yaba where he slowly sinks into a pit of beer-fueled moral degradation. And I would like to stress that it isn't mostly beer-fueled. Um, even Donald Pleasance's character makes mention of the fact, he's like, like, I am a doctor, I am also an alcoholic, and he makes mention that he only drinks beer. And gets really fucking pissed when the guy tries to order four shots of whiskey, and he keeps saying three shots. Well, because you know, when he drinks whiskey, bad thing happens. He gets dark. And uh, the town name is Boondinyaba. Boondinyaba. Okay, there we go. I don't know why my word didn't say so, yeah, that. Everybody there. refers it to as the Yaba. Um, when he first gets to town, uh, John Grant is uh, met by the sheriff who lets him know that it's the best ta- uh, place in town. Everybody's super, super friendly. Everybody, it's just the best place in the whole town. And you find out, no. Uh, so, Which, so, what a fucking character. Oh, he's absolutely oh, Just the idea, the like, like, he comes into this bar, which says, like, which by the way says closed at 6.30 and he walks in and it's packed. And the guy just says, hey mate, close the door, we're, we're closed. And just like, oh, they did a runner, like, they did a workaround, where it's like, they're literally closed. Well, it's like Casablanca, where it's like, sir, sir, I'm I'm absolutely astounded to find out there's gambling going on in the establishment. <laughs> sure, here are your winnings. Thank you very much. <laughs> Outrageous, sir. Like, it is that kind of thing. It, it is, like, when everybody else moves through this bar, everybody is moving through this crowded, giant, amorphous blob of people yeah and when the sheriff moves through he walks directly to the bar everyone moves out of his way just the they of immediately the red they immediately give him his beer he turns and he walks away he even says he's like like oh like the um john makes a, an attempt to go get beers for the two of them he's like i'll do it i'll get it quicker oh absolutely and it's just Oh, fuck this! Like this film is brilliant. I really it is a movie that it. gets all of the details of a small town right. That idea of like a tiny king of a tiny hill who is able to, who like despite the fact that yeah, this is a place in the middle of nowhere. And this, I will say, um, this town is based. So, if you know anything about Australia, you know that essentially it is a place where almost it's something like ninety percent of the population lives within a one hundred mile. Uh, strip of the coast and then there is several thousand miles an empty void of desert of yeah of an empty void of desert of which yes there are some people who work in mining towns and some farmers and this is a and and, some ranchers yaba is is a mining town and essentially um if you are on um the west side 
of Australia that is Perth. And that is the main town there. Mm-hmm. And then yeah. if you were to go to the complete other side, from what I understand, that is Sydney. And um, there is a couple thousand miles in between where it's one of those you can absolutely drive there. But if you time things wrong... Um, You're walking through desert. Well, no, you just die. Because, like, it's just... No, it's 75 miles to the next gas station and you didn't time things right. So you just die in the outback because there's just literally nothing there. It's just emptiness it is is it's a whole thing and that is what's so i don't know what's so amazing about this movie is not only is our main character not only does our main character find himself in one of those situations where you've just made one too many bad decisions and now you're stuck in downtown and you lost your wallet and you just need to find three dollars so you can take the subway back and mm-hmm. so suddenly you're trying to figure out how to get three dollars. Dude, dude is surviving on one dollar. Yeah, yeah. Or you are, you know, you are trying to figure out how to weasel some gas out of somebody. Or it's just, or those situations where you suddenly realize how valuable it is to know that when you have just a can of chicken to eat, if you go to the gas station, they have condiment packets, so you at least can put a little like mayonnaise and mustard and have at least a little bit of flavoring with. Uh, yeah, can of chicken it's, that is going to be your meal for the evening. But that is, but then you get into the thing that is almost the horror film of this movie, and it's that the people in this town are very giving, are aggressively giving, in the sense of like he walks into the pub, automatically he is offered a beer and pretty much told to drink it, and then is refilled once again. And when he has a very rough night and doesn't like loses his fucking winnings and is now stuck in the town. Well, not only loses his winnings, but all of his savings. He loses his paycheck, his briefcase. He, yeah, he well, like he throws away his briefcase, but like he he goes full on tilt, and, and like it is it is not one of those situations where like he is not robbed in the middle of the night. No, he did this to himself. Yeah, he initially wins when it comes to gambling. And then he goes back one more time than he should because and he loses it. To get the fuck out of education. He wants, yeah, absolutely. And so it turns out that the way that this worked back in the day was if you wanted to get into the teachers' union in Australia, you needed to pay a thousand dollars. You had to pay a thousand dollar bond that once you had earned enough to pay that back, um, you would you would have more control essentially over your career. Otherwise, until you paid that back, they could send you anywhere. And the way that Australia is uh, laid out, from what I understand, there are just tiny towns in the middle of nowhere where kids who work on farms and who parents own ranches need to go to school. And so sometimes that's where you kind of get assigned, even if that's not interesting to you. And mind you, this is not a guy who has a passion for teaching. This is a guy who, when we see in the very beginning of the movie, is silently waiting for like what I'm guessing is 3 o'clock to come up. Mm-hmm. As the time to dismiss his students, and then three, two, one. All right, everybody, get out of here. I no love- last minute lessons. No trying to get as much information. There's no passion of teaching. This is a guy who knows he can't dismiss his students early, but also isn't going to do absolutely any more work than is required. And I love the last kid that exits that classroom. By the way, way too tall, and you know has been there for far more years than he should. Mm-hmm. As like. See you next year, mate. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. You know, there's, I mean, and his reaction is just so defeated. And you can tell he's just done with education. There's he's just, sapped the, the passion out of him. There's so many good moments. There's so many good moments of blocking, so many good moments with the camera, so many good moments of just letting characters breathe, letting multiple kind of scenes take place at the same time. This uh, So one of my favorite scenes happens in the bar... And it's like, I want to say about 30 minutes in. And it's when you start to suddenly realize that something in this town is not right. And that's when this absolutely wild, crazy bar that's full of slot machines and gambling and drinking, so much drinking, and just this rebellious uh, crowd all of a sudden stops as a spotlight hits a, uh, what would you call it, a... uh, a, uh, a, a 
plaque. Yes, a plaque on the wall yeah. uh, in remembrance of what I, I had to do a little bit of research, but it turns out this is what's called an RL, uh, RSL lo, uh, lodge, and it's essentially it's kind of like the uh, it, it's kind of like a um, uh, in Australia they fought very heavily in both World War One and World War Two, and this became sort of a veterans club uh, where they would all talk about the despite the fact that like nobody ever attacked Australia. Australia always came and stood by the U.S. and the U.K. And so they had this very big, they have this yeah, very big ceremony about how they talk about those who were lost. And you kind of, it's, it's a really interesting scene because the main character obviously doesn't take it that seriously, but the sheriff definitely does and everybody else in the town does. You can even see the sheriff watching him as he's sort of looking, as John's looking around judging everybody. And the sheriff knows that that's what he's doing. But but he also, I think, knows that he doesn't know. They're like, no, buddy, this is the thing that we do here. Now, maybe John does because he's been teaching in the Outback for a while, and it's another one of those, like, ugh. John, John is one of those types of characters where he, he like, he's English. Um, totally. Very apparent. Um, by his fucking accent and by, by the fact that he just looks English. And he also is disenchanted by everything Australian. He looks down on everything, even as he's participating in it. Um, like he'll like like that will dissipate a little bit, and he'll take time to enjoy something. But automatically, you still see he he shows up until the very end, until that that final climax moment. He shows such discontent for the people, for the life that is the Australian outback, for this especially for this town and the idea of him being handed anything without him having to pay for it he finds absurd well he's he's someone who looks down on everybody in that town he thinks he's smarter than them yeah when he gets in trouble with the gambling it's because he thinks these are a bunch of dumb yokels playing a dumb coin flipping game of course he can take advantage of them and then what's fascinating is the foil that he's put up against is this character who is a doctor who is arguably smarter than he is but who has accepted that this is how you get along in a place like this donald pleasance realizes he'll never be able to have a deep conversation with the other regular people in this town but he realizes he can do that with john and donald pleasance also realizes that as a result he just needs to get drunk on beer specifically so he can get along with these guys and so that he can he can just survive where he knows that if he starts drinking whiskey things are going to get bad he's going to yeah. make like there's a there's a difference between making mistakes and making mistakes and shooting holes in your shack Yes, no, exactly. Yeah, there's yeah, there's a difference between yeah, getting into a rowdy fight and picking a fight with someone who's going to absolutely beat your ass. Yeah. And I would say that even John John is attracted to anybody who who he can have the same thing with John. He's attracted to anybody who he can have an in-depth conversation with, but also anybody who has any kind of disdain for where they are, which is why he's drawn to Jeanette. And Jeanette is one of those people where she makes the most out of her lot there. By, I don't want to say by sleeping with everybody, but, you know, I guess pretty much sleeping with everybody. Well, it, she, I she, th- she asks about whether or not John's seen somebody, and he answers yes. And I, I think she's so disgusted with everybody who's around her that as soon as someone new comes up, she's like, all right, I guess. Here, I want to have sex. I don't care if you don't. And then when he can't keep his 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 drink down and he throws up everywhere she's immediately like yet another man who has absolutely disappointed me and this one was kind of cute he looks like peter o'toole and i just needed him to not vomit anywhere everywhere and yet here we are 
just another shitty man disappointing me. And what's also interesting is, uh, and that actress is uh, played by Sylvia Kay, there is only, I believe, one other woman in this movie. I think maybe two. I know one of the bartenders yeah, is a the bar- woman. Yeah, one of the bartenders is, is a woman. And then the woman who works at the hotel, whose only positive moment in her life is when she dips her hand into water and while a fan is blowing directly on her, she lets that water drip onto her body and her bosom yeah. and evaporates and it cools her off. It, it is the only thing she appears to live for. And it it very much seems like she's going to be like, oh, this sexual femme fatale who is in the who's uh, who is seducing the men in the town and using it. No, she has zero time for our main character. She has zero time for anybody else involved at all. All she knows is that from the moment that she dips her hand in the cup and then that water evaporates on her chest, she feels 3% better as her body temperature drops. Yeah. Three degrees. Rinse. Cause, repeat. Because as a, I don't know if you folks know this, but Australia is a pretty fucking hot place. And the entire time I'm watching this film, I want to take a shower. Because everything is sweaty. Everything is glistening. Everything is dirty. Everything is uncomfortable. This movie does a great job of selling you the vibe. And from uh, my friend David, uh, sorry, my friend uh, Daniel Thron, who read the book, that is one of the things that this movie gets so correct. I'm your friend too. Yeah, like so correct about the this adaptation is the idea of place and what this place feels like and how the people feel about it. It is. Uh, the uh, Joe uh, Farrell, the grandson of the writer about this, spoke in the uh, in their episode about how after he saw this movie, he went to the director and was just like, "Dude, you did it! What a I that's exactly what I had in my head. You wrote the thing in my what a great adaptation. I'm so proud of you." And that's such a rare thing for yeah, yeah, a Kenneth, writer. Kenneth Cook, right? Yes, Kenneth yeah, Cook is the Kenneth writer. Cook. It's so rare for a writer. To be that happy with the adaptation of a film. Because if nothing else, you tend to get something wrong. Or in order to get the financing, the casting is a little off. Or you, or just the writer had a different vibe in his head. And somebody else is telling your Director story. Director fucking nailed it. Yeah, absolutely. This is, I mean, it's, it, it, Ted Koshif definitely had a career afterwards. But this is... This is a movie up there with like Deliverance and Taxi Driver, I think, is one of the best kind of existential psyche movies of the 1970s. And it's one that I would really like to talk about more. Which, yeah, and that brings us back to uh, somebody we were talking about a little bit earlier, Martin Scorsese, because uh, both, uh, well, Taxi Driver, which is his, but uh, After Hours, which is also his, and then the other movie that I think this movie reminds me a lot of is kind of king of comedy that idea of uh, a character well the idea of being with a character who you suddenly realize is going to take you a little too far and it's going to be a little scarier um nightcrawler is another one yes okay yeah you're kind of like buckled into this character and you're like oh this isn't going to go well this is one of those films there there there's a there's a handful of films that i can count on on both hands that are all about Making you uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, like one of them is like Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, for example. Yes. Whereas the idea that somebody like I am going to Las Vegas to cover this thing, and it is literally just financing my drug habit, um, and I'm also bringing my friend with me, is pretty much the basic premise of that film. Totally. Um, but yeah, like similarly, like this is. Uh, a fish. This is a little bit of a fish out of water story. It's definitely that. I mean, he's from England, so if nothing else, he's a fish out of water in Australia. But a fish out of the water, out of not not only in Australia, but in the outback of Australia, well, where just, like he could still be a fish out yeah. of water if he was in Sydney, and it would be like, oh, look at this, you know, look at this bloke. He doesn't quite know how to, you know. Oh, he's so fancy. Yeah, no, absolutely. Oh, he's ordering shrimp on the barbie when he should be ordering fish and chips. <laughs> oh. But no, it's it's like. No, 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 city boy, not from this continent, in a place that he just is not familiar with mm-hmm. at all. Some of my favorite acting from him was during the gambling scene, and just watching him 
of like at one point like like at the beginning being like this is like it seems so simple of course these simpletons are into this thing and then he watches it on and on and then you see just in it's all in his eyes because this dude has fucking saucers for eyes oh absolutely he is beautiful um and you just see him observe the energy in the room and the idea like and once once those coins go down and you know it's either heads or tails Everyone rushes in and grabs their money. And he just, like, he's so taken aback by this. He's like, how do you know that people aren't going to grab money that's not theirs? You're like, oh, people know what's theirs and what's not, you know. Well, it's just, it's one of those things you're like, no, no, no. When there's a town this small, sure. You can't run anywhere. Well, like, yeah, even if you could, where are you going to go? And we're going to know where you are. (laughs) We're going to find you pretty quick. Or you're going to come back. And then we're going to beat your ass and we're going to take it from you. And sure, you might get away with it once. But then where are you going to go? Like, you then no have you have nowhere to go. So it's this kind of like, yeah, it's this, it's this fishbowl mentality of like, both there's nowhere to run and there's nowhere to hide. And so therefore, yeah. you kind of have to play by the rules of the fishbowl. It's the first time you see the main character dive into... The life head first. When you see him see the appeal, yeah, of that life and everything that it leads to, and and just like, and he wins big the first time, and all he can think is, I can finally be done with teaching. He just want he hates it. Well, he just wants to pay off that thousand dollar bond, which it took me a little bit of work, but I found out that a thousand dollars Australian in nineteen seventy, because this was released in nineteen seventy one. So it had been produced in 1970. Okay. Would be equivalent to about $9,200 American today. Shut the front so, fucking door. So, mind you, uh, like, I would say, a, like, a, like a, to quote Gilgan's Island, a two-year tour. Like, if you're thinking about you're making a decent amount of money... <laughs> Right, like if I had to pay, if I if I got if I found a ninety two hundred dollar bill in my mail tomorrow, under normal circumstances when there wasn't a plague, I could comfortably, I would say, probably pay that off by hiking up my bootstraps and tightening my belt and doing everything that I can in two. Maybe three months. Three, well, three years. Depending, I mean, like, mind you, like, if I still had bills to pay. Yeah. Like, oh, okay. Yeah, you know, yeah, like, yeah, in yeah. addition to my rent and that, like, if I just, if I, you know, suddenly was like, I put $9,200 on my credit card. It's a couple of years. Even, like, yeah. and with your with your belt tight. Mm-hmm. And if not, more. So you can understand why this guy, you know, as he says, is one more spin of the coins away. From being done with teaching, and in my and he un- wants to become a journalist. Yeah, he wants to become a journalist, and he wants to, I believe, go back to England, or if nothing else, at least go to Sydney, mm-hmm. which yeah. is where his his girlfriend is. His girlfriend, or the girl that he really fancies, because like he doesn't he doesn't spend a huge chunk of this movie calling her and being like, oh, sorry. I'm yeah. going to be there in a few more days. Like, this is much more of, like, a fantasy girl. This almost seems The idea me, of her. Well, it's, like, the idea of her or this idea that, like, you're going to go to Sydney and you're going to meet this hot beach girl for a couple of days. But I don't know how... His actually, heart is not in Australia. Well, I don't know how actually real she is. I don't know if she's someone that he's actually going to go meet in Sydney or she's more of the idea of the girl that he's going to meet mm-hmm. in Sydney. I'm finally going to get out of the outback and I'm finally going to get to the city and then I'm finally going to meet this girl who's going to come running out of the waves like a honey rider in the Dr. No movies. Yeah. Which to me seems especially in the way that the scene is cut in with the movie and becomes part of the drunken fantasy sequences makes me really question whether it's Actually, a girl that he knows in Sydney, or just a fantasy. Well, the yeah. idea of meeting the hot city girl, because yeah. like when there's 15 girls in your town, there's 15 girls in your town, and some of them are probably married or in relationships. Which is sort of the issue that Jeanette has. Well, yeah, and then yeah, and then we're in the city. Like there's always you know, and if nothing else, there's always a new person coming to town in Sydney on the bus from the countryside in order to make it in the big city. 
and so, yeah, that's, I mean, ooh, man, this movie has left me with so many thoughts and feelings. Uh, I mean, the biggest one is just go see this movie. It's so good. It's available on Amazon Prime. It's on Shudder. It is something that we are able to see now because mm-hmm. uh, directly of Martin Scorsese and his work in helping uh, find the negative, which was yeah. lost yeah, for please. a really long yeah. time. Yeah, tell, tell, tell the story about the negative because it is fucking fascinating. So, basically, uh, the, the only print that was known for a really long time was available in Ireland. And it was, from what I understand, a copy of a television transfer. So we're talking about below DVD quality and we're talking about a trimmed television transfer. And then, because of the work of Martin Scorsese and then the editor, Anthony Buckley, um, they were able to find a much more uh, uh, high, uh, a much better preserved copy of the movie uh, in its almost its original negative in, I want to say it was uh, Pittsburgh, in a, in a case that was labeled... Was it suited for? Um, uh, I'm trying to remember the name here. Hang on. Let me. Uh, it was labeled for destruction. So if they hadn't found it when they did, it would have been incinerated and lost. We time. would have never seen it. Absolutely. And so yeah. And so that it led to the 2009 uh, re uh, restoration of the movie itself. Uh, it got uh, itself into the Library of Congress. It is now part of the uh, Australian. Uh, essentially the the Australian Library of Congress as well. It is considered to be a great classic. It has been completely restored. And on top of it, they even remade it, as we were saying before, into a miniseries. And it's one of of those movies that proves why film restoration is so important. Because, yes, sometimes the movies that we are going to lose are weird movies that were lost to time because they weren't particularly good. But sometimes we will lose great classics yeah. because they just weren't appreciated in their time. I, I, I think of the... Um, I remember when I first moved out here, I took the, the tour of Paramount. Uh, Paramount. Yeah. And one of the parts of the tour was this giant fire that happened. And it was of the place where they stored all the films because around that time especially, um, the films were actually very flammable. Oh yeah, and could no. catch fire very easily. Oh yeah, no, and they were made of silver like, nitrate. They were incredibly yeah. were bored, they, yeah. they were actually there we go explosive. silver nitrate. That's yeah. what I was thinking. Of. And so they talked about how many films were incinerated. I'm just like, can you think about how many possible classics were destroyed? How many careers were destroyed in that one tiny well, fucking well, not fire? Careers, legacies. Well, legacies. There we go. How because like that person were... still had a career. They still got paid. But yeah. you know what? Yeah, some of the best directors, some of the best actors out there might have just had their films recycled for the silver uh, in them because they just weren't appreciated in their time. And if you go back and you look at the history of film, there are a lot of great movies that we love now that were not not box office hits no. at all. A lot of cult classics, I would arguably say, did not make a lot of money mm-hmm. in their opening weekends. Absolutely. And I would say, like, I think it is completely idiotic to judge a film by its opening weekend. Oh, completely. I, if you're if you're judging a film's success by how it does in the first month, you know you're gonna miss out on a lot of great movies. Exactly. I I, I think I, I think you need to expand your horizons in terms of how you look at film. Uh, but like, but this the, the editor who found this negative made it sort of his his weekend project to go in digi- and digitally restore this ne- this master negative frame. By fucking frame. Mm-hmm. Do you know how many frames are in a film this long? Oh, 24 per second. So hundreds, yeah. of, hundreds of thousands, if hundreds. not millions by the so time that every, you get to So every frame he actually went in and fixed. And like he found this master negative and it was in terrible condition. It was scratched. It was wrinkled. It was like, it was just terrible mm-hmm. looking. And he fixed it. He made his... It was his his thing that he did in his free time. Yeah. And that is just... Because the, the movie was just that important. Then. Yes, exactly. It was that fucking good. And so I highly recommend that you take the time to just go out and check this movie out because this one person spent hours upon hours of his time restoring it so that you could watch it. 
Like, that is how fucking good this there, movie is. There's a reason it's only one of two movies that has ever played at the Cannes Film Festival twice, and it's premiere, and then it's restoration. Mm-hmm. So that is a reason that you should check it out. Absolutely. Now, speaking of important films, David, we are going to be talking about the movie that we're going to be talking about next week, and our next episode is going to be a Freaky Friday episode, which is great for Freaky me. Friday! Because it means I don't have to do any work and David does all the work. You don't gotta do shit. All I gotta do is watch one movie and that makes me very happy because sometimes my brain hurts. Which works for me because I am unemployed. There we go. So also please uh, make sure to send us uh, money. If, yes. Uh, if you're able to, we would greatly appreciate any little donation for beer money or whatever. Whatever. Yeah, hit us up on the, uh, the Twitter, on the Instagram, and we will let you know our Venmos or PayPals if that's what you need. Yeah. And uh, if really uh, this happens to be a thing that more than one of you reaches out for, maybe we'll start up a Patreon. We will find out. But right now, the important thing is not all the money that you're giving us. The important thing is all the content that we're going to be giving you. So David, I have a question. Before we step into the time machine and we travel in time as I watch these trailers. What are the movies that I'm going to have to choose from for next week? Ken, I'm actually, uh, because I couldn't really choose between two movies, I, I, I just, you know, I decided to give you a choice of three movies. You absolute to rebel. From. Absolute oh, rebel. This I'm like is breaking the mold. Ridiculous. Breaking um, the rules. So the first one is is a film by uh, Francois Simard or Francois Simard. That's uh, not how you pronounce that. But you know, I, I don't know, but it's called Turbo Kid. Okay. Um, yeah, Turbo Kid. Okay. Which you know the cover is certainly pretty fucking interesting. It's got uh, people in it. Wow. Right? <laughs> uh, the other one is um, is Color of Space by okay. uh, a director Richard Stanley. Oh and, yes. Okay. Yeah, an no, an uh, unknown right. actor. Um, you know, you, you might have seen him in a couple other things. He hasn't done a whole lot. A guy named Nicholas Cage. Oh, uh, yes. No, actually, I got my degree at junior college from Greendale in Nicolas Cage movies. So, yes, no, I'm he, sounds like, he, he sounds like a, a, a prize fighter. He is, uh, he is a unique individual who no one else is comparable to. Um, and then the third movie um, is, is another one that I have seen called Tigers Are Not Afraid by oh. Issa Lopez. Um, this, yeah, and this is another, like, Wonderful one. It's it's again. It's sort of a cultural deep dive. Okay. Um, so so yeah. So this that's what we have right now. So all of them have trailers that I'm going to show Ken, and we'll see what he's uh, what his interests are piqued by. All right, David. If you want to uh, engage the time machine. Okay. Beep boop boop beep boop boop beep. Oh, it's nice and cool in here. Always. Well, the air oh. conditioning, I keep it on. Oh, two beers waiting for us. Yeah, no, no, too. it's like oh. at 68 degrees in the time machine at all times. Oh. Right, you want to program in the uh, the time of the day? All right. Good God, the future is still 2021, isn't it? God oh, God. that's why I'm drunk. I really wish the time machine moved faster, but... It unfortunately is what it is. Um, yeah, so David's still burning. So David, I watched I watched a couple of trailers here, and I'm not gonna lie. Um, Turbo Kid looked way better than I thought it was gonna be. Uh-huh. Um, color of Night looked pretty insane. A color of Space. Uh, color of Space. I'm sorry, looked insane and interesting, and definitely one that I've got on my watch list. But um, the thing that I think I'm the most interested in is the Shutter exclusive. Tigers are not afraid. It looks Ooh. like. Kind of like a, a Latin X it maybe. Yeah. Um, I'm pretty. I'm pretty excited for checking that out. Ken, I mean, you you know how much I enjoy the whaling and literally just just jumping into the culture of another country and the film that came from it. So I am I am very excited to do this one. Well, I'm looking forward to making another white person do a cultural deep dive into a culture that he is not part of. Narcos, baby. Yep, no, absolutely. So this should be fascinating, but hopefully we won't. Um, end up with anything too offensive or uh i like learning yes no absolutely (laughs) i'm pretty excited david uh speaking of learning is there anything that you want to uh learn our listeners about uh, where they can either uh any any pluggables that you want to plug or where they can find you um feel free to learn a little bit more about my life at underscore dw marlowe on instagram um also i run the uh our instagram page at at shutter underscore show um, on that page, and there we can we is where we make our announcements about what films we decide to do, when we'll be releasing the episode, 
All of our episodes are released wherever your podcasts are casted. Uh, and yeah, and then once again, I will always throw a tiny little pitch towards the uh, uh, L.A. Horror Productions' Serena Waits. Uh, feel free to check that production out on Amazon Prime. And you can check us out on at Shutter Show on Twitter, on at Shutter underscore show at Instagram. Uh, you can check me out on Twitter and Instagram at Ken Stachnik, S-T-A-C-H-N-I-K. And I guess until next week, you beautiful nerds of the internet, go fuck yourselves, and I hope you have a wonderful, happy coup year. You beautiful sons of bitches, go fuck yourself. Good night! Good night!